This morning, I'd like you to turn to page 1051, our reading from the Gospel of John, uh, John 3, and we're going to be looking at 14 through 21, um, and a little background on that, but then I'm going to give you background on something else. Uh, this is the story of how Nicodemus, the Pharisee, came to Jesus at night and asked him some questions. Uh, and Jesus tells him you need to be born again, and then he kind of talks about uh, being born uh, from the Spirit. And then our sort of the most famous passage that you see in all of Christendom, the one where people go to football games and they hold up the sign, you know, it just says John 3.16, and nobody except for Christians knows what that is, so that what is John 3.16? And uh, we quote it so often, and we're going to do a little, something a little different today. I'd also like you to take out of your bulletin that one sheet that has upcoming events, because on the back side, um, I've taken those two verses, 16 and 17, and tried to unpack them and actually expand them as to what a sort of an expanded translation. And we'll work with this later, but, you, but have it handy. Now, real quick, um, a background about the reading that Brian just read from Numbers. This is uh, the story of the people of God. They had been rescued from Egypt. And we, as we see so often, this recurring theme is that God delivers his people from slavery and with really a mighty hand. You know, the, 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 the sea parts and they walk through on dry land. This is amazing. If that wasn't enough, there's this giant pillar of cloud going in front of them and a, a pillar of fire protecting them. And this is all pretty amazing stuff. They forget it really quickly. They get through to the other side, and almost immediately they start saying things like, gosh, Egypt sure was nice. Slavery was awesome compared to this. Part of it's because they're hungry. Part of it's because they've experienced change, and with change comes loss, and with loss comes grief and sometimes anxiety. And so they, they're like, I, some, on some weird level, I prefer the slavery that I know and was used to to the freedom that's lying ahead of me and beckoning with all of its uncertainties and with all of the trust that's required of me. I'm out in the wilderness. There's no uh, farms out in the wilderness. There's no way to raise food. They're dependent on God for the manna falling from heaven, the quail landing in their camps. And you may notice Brian read from a different translation, but if you had read along in the NIV, the people grumble and complain to God, and they say, we've had enough of this detestable food. Your translation had horrible. But they actually said detestable food. And that's actually the same word that God uses about the practices of the people, the religious practices of the people that he was sending them into the land to, to sweep away. This is what he says in Leviticus 20, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 23. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I detested them or I abhorred them. So the, the people of God use this word detestable about God's gift to them. Do, do you get that? Do you get how much of an insult that was to God? And it's in, in essence comparing God's food to the detestable or abhorrent practices of the people that God is sending them to drive out. And so um, there's all sorts of problems with this community. They're longing for slavery in the face of freedom. They're looking at a good gift from God, and they're calling it detestable. 
They're, they're showing this utter lack of trust and faith and thankfulness to God for everything that he did. But the biggest thing was, he said, they said, God brought us out into this wilderness to die, to kill us all. And it's calling God's motives into question. God's motive was to free them, to give them a new land. And they said, no, God brought us out here so he could kill us. And you know, you know this, um, this one verse that kind of haunts us, don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you know what I mean? Because that's the one unforgivable sin, and theologians and everybody's all these years have been like, well, what is that? How do I not do that? Because I really don't want to do that one, you know? And some theologians, in a way, think that th- that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is to tell God, no thank you for what you've given to me, to call God's gift to us horrible or detestable. So on some level, what the people were doing here was, was kind of akin to this unforgivable sin, calling into question God's motives, the loving God who loves us, who frees us, to say, you don't really love us or free us. You brought us out here to kill us. So God is mad. And this is one of the times when, when Moses wasn't able to talk God out of his anger. There's a few other times that we read where God says, I'm going to destroy them all and start over with you. And Moses says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. This time God gets mad enough that Moses is not able to talk him out of his anger. So God sends, and this is crazy, frightening, God sends snakes into their camp. And these snakes slither all around and start biting people. And some of them start dying. And that gets everybody else's attention. I think that would. You know, like a whole bunch of snakes. If there was a hundred snakes in this, you know, place and the doors were closed and you couldn't get out and they were everywhere, I... I'm sorry I even said that, because now you're just going to be thinking that for the next 20 minutes, right? But that would get our attention, I think. And we might go, God, help us. God, save us. And that's the movement that happened in that moment. They said to Moses, pray to God for us. Pray to God. We, we repent. We're done. They turned around. And, so, and in that moment, Moses took this staff and a bronze serpent. He put on the end of it, and he lifted it high in the air, and everybody who could see it and turn towards it. And, and the idea is that they turned away from whatever they were doing, and they turned their attention to this symbol that Moses put up on the end of his staff, and they were healed in that moment. And that, that staff um, actually has its own name. It's called the Nehushtan. Isn't that pretty? Actually, we had a neighbor back at our old place in Mountain View, and his, name, his last name was Nehushtan. So he's named after this staff, the staff with the serpent on the end of it. And there's a similar thing going on um, if you're in the medical profession. The symbol for the, the medical profession in the United States is something called a caduceus, which is a pole with wings on the top, but it also has two snakes kind of wrapped around it. And actually that was the pole or the, the staff of Hermes. And in actuality, it has nothing to do with medicine. It was confused with another symbol from Greek mythology called the Rod of Asclepius, which was a symbol of healing. But that Rod of Asclepius looks a lot like this Nehushtan. Just the interesting thing is that these two different cultures had similar symbols for healing, which kind of tells you about something about God. God's truth is kind of present in other cultures and in other ideas. But so this bronze snake being lifted up on the end of Moses' staff became this symbol, and Jesus references that symbol. That's why I'm talking about it. Jesus references that symbol in our reading today, and he likens himself to that staff with the the bronze serpent on it 
as a thing that brings life, healing, and salvation to the world. So that's a little bit of the background on Numbers and a little bit of background on John. And with that, let's go to our reading, John 3, 14 through 21. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, or everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word, and thank you for your Son, whom we call the Word. Thank you for Jesus coming into this world to bring healing, hope, and salvation, and life eternal in the presence of you. Bless now this word as it goes out, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do today is something a little bit different, just to give enough background so that we can reread John 3, 16 and 17 in sort of an expanded way, along with that, that sheet that I gave you. And so I just want to go through a few ideas here that may help us reframe that. The first that we get is that Jesus is drawing on the Old Testament. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the wilderness and people turned to it and were healed... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's talking not about being on the end of a, of a pole, but he is actually talking about himself being on top of a cross. This is very much a passage that has to do with the crucifixion to come. This is very much a passage about what it looks like when God saves the world. He saves the world through the cross, through his Son on the cross. And so when we read that old story from uh, Numbers we see Christ is already present there in that bronze serpent that's hanging on the cross, or on the, on, the, on the staff. This You should immediately see this parallel here with Christ hanging on the cross as a place where God enters the world to bring healing and hope to his people. Even people who had just called his food detestable uh, you could unpack that a little bit. What if somebody came to your house for dinner? I've been to some of your houses for dinner. Uh, even if I thought this, I would never do this. Okay? But that hasn't happened yet, because all your food has been delicious, and I mean that. But if it was really bad, and I said so, I would never be invited to your house again. I'm sure of it. If you made a dinner for somebody, and they spit it out and said, this is disgusting. Now, I have a six-year-old who sometimes does that when we try to introduce new foods in, but we forgive him because he's six years old. But 
to look at God's good gift and say, this is detestable. I mean, it's a strong word, or disgusting would also be a, an appropriate translation, or abhorrent. I, we don't, that's not a common word would we have. Your food is abhorrent. <laughs> well, um, this is what God does. He has grace for people who call his, call his motives into question. He has grace for people who call his good gifts disgusting. He has grace for people who remember sin fondly and don't appreciate the freedom that they've been given. He has grace for people who can't handle change. He has grace for people who prefer the familiarity of slavery to the wide and beckoning and open but frightening, yes, frightening possibilities of freedom and the responsibilities of freedom. Freedom comes with responsibility, too. Uh, they have to do stuff in the new land. So I love it when these passages from the Old Testament are intersected with these movements in the New Testament. And we see that over and over again. Going through the Red Sea is like baptism. Do you remember this? You go down into the water and you die down there and you come out again to new life and the people of God go down and they come up. And, and they could theoretically pass back over to the other side, but they can't. They wouldn't. All they're longing for the, whole, the, the old country of Egypt is just that. It's longing. They can't really go back. But even longing for it, God judges them for it. He says, how can you long for this old stuff? And Jesus does the same thing. So when you become a Christian, when you accept this, you, you are, you're past this point now where the snakes come into the camp. You're free. You're, you're safe from snakes, uh, which is a beautiful thing. Now, um, I just want to point out one thing. And take a look at verse 15, especially in your sanctuary Bible. It's on page 1051. And you might have noticed that I read it both ways, Okay. In the reading, the normal reading in John 3.15 is that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. But do, do you notice that there's a text note there, especially in the NIV? Who else has it as, or everyone who believes may have, what does it say? Eternal life in him. So where does the in him belong is really a great question here, Okay. And actually, the correct reading of this, the, what we think is the correct reading, is actually the one in the margin of your Bible. Everywhere, almost everywhere else in John, it says that you believe in him. Your belief is in him. But in this particular case, and, and because it's that way everywhere else, most interpreters assume that this was some sort of minor mistake in the text. And it should read, believe in him will have eternal life. But it's actually different here than it is almost everywhere else in the rest of John's gospel. It's a very small change in the preposition. In, in English, prepositions have meaning based on their location in our sentence, right? So exactly like this. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. The in him is right around believe. Does everybody understand? So the in him kind of modifies this idea of believing. What's the object of the belief? Him. Otherwise, it's everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, and with the in him is close to eternal life, it locates where that eternal life is. It's in him. The eternal life is in him. That's the preferred reading. In Greek, it's different. In Greek, uh, 
the word order actually doesn't matter. You can, you can jumble a sentence up almost completely, and the order of the words makes almost no difference. In fact, somebody would jumble it up so much just to be artistic, just to be interesting, and, and the person listening would have to piece it together. The way you know where this preposition belongs in Greek is the, the shape or the change in these prepositions in these words. And the preferred reading actually is that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The eternal life, you believe in him. We, everywhere else in, the, in this gospel we have, we believe in him. We understand that we believe in Jesus. But this particular verse is telling us where that eternal life is located. It's located in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, And that's important because I think especially for evangelicals, we often hear, if you go to camp or you talk to your family, that God wants, Jesus wants to enter into your heart and come inside of you and be inside you, be in us, Jesus in us. But a far more sort of prevalent, especially in the work of Paul, a more prevalent idea is that we are in him. It's a little different. Yes, he's in us. There's no doubt that he's in us. And we believe the Holy Spirit has indwelled us and, and the, the Spirit is in us and Jesus is in us. But a far more powerful, perhaps, idea is that on some level, we have our life in him. We have eternal life in him. We are participating with him and in him in our baptism and in our resurrection. And so the things that he has become ours because we participate with him. John uh, 15, where we have our, our passage about being the vine and the branches, really makes this clear, this idea that we are like fruit or we're like branches on this vine. We are in the vine. We're part of it. We're, we're connected to him. The vine isn't in us. We're in the vine, if that makes sense. And so I want to just point out that this is about, that this passage is trying to have it both ways and, and succeeds, actually. That there's this idea of eternal life, but that eternal life is located in the person of Jesus Christ, and it comes to us at the cross. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about um, this idea of eternal life. And that's another area where we, um, we have this idea, especially a sort of a Western modern idea of time, is that time goes on and on. And, and in, in the Bible sense, we think that time will somehow transition at some point to an exalted future where we're with God, and then time will continue on for eternity. Does everybody understand that? I mean, it's, we, we all think that way. I, or we, maybe we all think that way. That, and that my children ask me about this. How long is that? Are we, aren't we going to get bored? And what are we going to do forever? And I, I try to say lame things like, well, you know, you're going to have such a great time praising God, you won't notice time passing, or you won't get bored because it will be so exciting, which I hope is true. C.S. Lewis talks about this in, the, in the, the, his final book of the Narnia series, The, the Last Battle. He, he likens heavens to a book or a story, and every page you turn, it gets better. So you never want to put this book down, and it just keeps getting better and better all the time. It's all beautiful, but it's all very Western. It's all very evangelical. It's all great, and there's nothing wrong with it. But I want to challenge us to think of it in a little bit different way. I think the way people saw time back then was a little bit different. They, and, and I think the way God sees time isn't in this linear sense that we see it, but more like there are times that are always overlapping each other and that we can actually live in two times at once. We can live in the time of this world, 
But we can also live in this time of eternal presence in the life of the eternal God now. And on some level, that time really has no beginning or end in a meaningful sense. We, in the way we think of beginnings and ends, they just are. They exist all the time. And so um, I, I'm, I have the sense now that I've totally confused everybody. And that's because I'm totally confused by it too because I can't comprehend how God does time. But here's what I'd want to say about it, is that when Jesus talks about eternal life here, that we may have eternal life in him, he may not be talking about something at the end of the rapture that goes on for infinity after now, but he might be talking about real life now in the presence of the eternal God. Does that make sense? It shouldn't, but I'll say it again. If you say, no, it doesn't make sense, I'll feel like I've done my job right, okay? But... Eternal life may not mean some other life in the future that we haven't reached yet until we die, as comforting as that is. But eternal life means real life now in the presence of the eternal God, which I like better. I like that better because it means this promise that we receive at the cross begins in the moment that we believe it. And it isn't so much about time in the future, but it's about being in the presence of God who is himself eternal. It's a safe place. It's a beautiful place. It's a place of our connection with God that cannot be assailed, that cannot be gone back on. There's no return to Egypt from that place and from that time. So that's um, one aspect as we piece this together. Another is this, this idea of believing. We have very a few meanings for what we we mean when we say we believe something. One could be we just agree to it intellectually, like the facts check out. The other is that we don't have a basis for the facts checking out. We have some kind of trust in something that we can't see. John has a specialized use of the word believe, the Greek word for believe. And I want to list these all out because I want to hold them all in tension as we rewrite or re-expand John 3:16 and 17. Um, One idea in John is that believing in Jesus is not just believing what we've heard or read about him after the fact, like the historical record of it, although that's important. But it's actually believing in him himself, his actual person, as he comes to us in the word, as a human being in front of us. And that's what John is getting at at the beginning of his gospel, where he says, in the beginning was the word which was Jesus, but if you notice, it's always with a capital W because it's this personified, incarnated word that we believe in. It's, we believe in a person. We believe in the God who entered the world in human flesh. So it's more than just believing stories about him. It's believing him and in him, himself, the person. It does also mean that we accept what he says and we agree with it. Being believe, believing in John is also always tied to salvation. Believing and being saved are always tied together in John's writing. And, it means, and on some level, it means being saved from darkness and brought into light or being uh, uh, delivered from lies and into truth. It's beautiful. And then it also carries with it an, an implied renunciation of the world. Not the whole world, but the world as John understands, and I'm going to get to that in a second, that when you believe, you renounce other beliefs. 
When you believe in Jesus, you renounce the things that are opposed to Jesus. And that brings us really close now to what does John mean when he says the world? For God so loved the world. Does he mean, you know that beautiful picture of the earth from the moon? That I think it was Neil Armstrong took it, and it's beautiful. This blue globe hanging in space with some cloud cover over Africa. Does that what it means? Does God love the world? Well, yes. God loves his creation, but when John talks about the world, it's actually in a negative sense. The world is not a positive thing in John's writing. When John writes about the world, he doesn't mean the earth or the creation. He means that part of the world that is violently opposed to God's purposes for the creation. The world is the seat of opposition, evil, darkness, the thing that calls God's good gifts detestable, The world is that thing which has organized itself to oppose what God wants to do. So when you believe, you renounce the world. You renounce opposition to God, and you claim solidarity with God and what God wants to do with the world. Then one last idea. And uh, I was so cute when Sophie was um, saying the, the reading that God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. And I don't like to... Uh, to uh, correct children when they're being so sweet like that, but I felt like I wanted to help her. I hope that's okay, Ben, you know. Because it wasn't his forgotten son. It was his begotten son. The imagery here is from the book of Genesis. Do you remember that story where God calls Abraham? And he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And that repetition, your son, your only son, is a real symbol in the Old Testament that this is something extremely dear to to Abraham. It's, It's basically all he's got, all right? His other son is gone, the one he had with Hagar. She, they've moved off. He's left with one son through whom all the promises that God has made to Abraham are going to be carried. And God says to him, take that one and sacrifice him. What a confusing thing to Abraham, right? But yet Abraham's faithfulness was that he went to do it. And we know in the last moment that that didn't happen. And it was to show even Abraham how faithful he was. That's the language that I think John is drawing on, that God gave his son, his only son, in the same manner of faithfulness that Abraham did, but wasn't required to follow through on, God did follow through on. Do you get that? That's that idea that when he says his only begotten his son, not his only forgotten son, but his only begotten son, God is doing for the world what Abraham was asked to do, but not required to do in the end for, for God. And so it becomes in that sort of that image. So we're ready for uh, our reading here. I'm going to translate this, and everywhere where I've kind of highlighted an idea or a theme, I've replaced it with these other sort of ideas or themes, okay? And if this is meaningful for you, take it home and keep it. You know, because you've probably memorized John 3.16, but it might be helpful to have something like this and, and just say, ah, this has a deep, hopefully a deeper sense of what all that means when we say that out loud. Because otherwise, it could, John 3.16 could just become a poster that we hold up at a football game, and it becomes devoid of its meaning. But here, it, 
hopefully, and I hope I've been faithful, it, it's expanded in its translation. And so this is how I would read it. For God so loved the people who were violently opposed to his purposes for creation that he gave his son, his only son, in the way of faithfulness for which Abraham was praised, that whoever believes in him as God's living word for the world accepts his message, believes and hopes for salvation, and renounces darkness should not be destroyed but have life now in the eternal presence of God. For God did not send his only son into the place of violent opposition to his purposes to judge and condemn its violent opposition, but to save, redeem, and heal that place of violent opposition through his one and only son. Well, I'm not going to read it again, but I hope that's helpful. I hope that's meaningful expansion of John 3, 16 and 17. And don't try to memorize this one because it's not the Bible, okay? It's just, don't memorize, just memorize scripture, but keep this as a handy guide if you want. And if it's not helpful for you, be sure to recycle it. I won't be hurt. Don't worry. Um, I want to just say that really this is what the cross is about. You put it all together, this is what the cross is about. Is that on the cross, God enters a world that calls his gifts detestable. God enters a world that's violently opposed to it. And God actually holds over the world a right and necessary judgment about its sinfulness. The Son of God does not come to judge the world. God has already judged the world. So it's not that Jesus doesn't participate in this judgment of the world. It's just his coming was to save the world, not to judge it. The judging had already taken place. And the judgment is just. Just as God was right to send snakes into that camp, God is right to destroy that part of this creation that's violently opposed to his purposes. And yet he does something different. He holds out for a day of grace. He lifts his own son up like the serpent was on that pole, and he holds his own son up on the cross in this act of faithfulness reminiscent of Abraham. But that act of faithfulness is both God the Father's and God's the, God the Son's. It's that faithfulness of Christ that we look to. And he does that so people could turn and be healed by the cross, by looking towards the cross and seeing it. And it transforms this place and time we're in from one of death to a different place and time. God's presence in the eternal, always there with us now for those of us who believe. That's what the cross is. And as we get closer to Good Friday and to Good Easter, I hope we can meditate on this aspect of the cross. God entering the world to do that. One last thing. One last thing. We can get so used to the concept of the cross, uh, it's what it looks like, and kind of lose track of what it means. Just how you can hold up John 3.16, and it can kind of, it can be more like a weapon than actually this word of hope. And crosses can be like this too. We have them uh, on top of our church. In fact, I took a beautiful picture of the cross this morning on top of our church. There's a beautiful sky behind it. We wear crosses as jewelry, and we start to see just an object, but not the person on it, not the redemption that it comes do you remember the Nehushtan? 
this stick with... Does anyone know what actually happened to that in the long run? It's a little Bible quiz. Yeah, Paul. Exactly. God, King Hezekiah had to destroy the Nehushtan because the people were worshiping this stick with the serpent on top of it instead of God. Isn't that amazing? That this beautiful symbol that that actually points to Christ had to be destroyed at some point by a, a righteous king of Israel because people had drifted away from understanding what it was about and started worshiping it himself. And so I think that's just a warning to us that we have the cross. At the cross, we encounter God who wants us to have life now in his eternal presence. But we can lose sight of what that means and we just worship an empty thing or it becomes a symbol to us or it becomes a weapon for us that we use against other people. And then in that case, God should rightly come and destroy the cross in front of us so that we could refocus our worship on him and on his son who did all this for us. So a word of warning at the end that we always are drawn back to what happened on the cross and to who was on the cross rather than on the cross itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of grace, your word of warning. We thank you for the cross on which your son died in faithfulness so that we could enter life now into your eternal presence. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.